Hi everybody, welcome to Trading Conversations. You are here, my friend, because you believe that profitable trading is one of the most efficient ways to attain financial freedom and can be achieved as long as you are willing to put in the hard work to develop your trading competency. Our goal with this show is to introduce you to the traders who have dug through the trenches and emerged at the other end. From the sharing of their trading stories, strategies, workflow and best practices, I hope to help you shorten your learning curve as you embark on your journey towards trading mastery. Today's guest is the president and CEO of one of the biggest and most established premier trading education facilities in the Philippines. He has been trading the international equities market for more than nine years now and is a strong believer in a holistic approach towards trading. He believes that um, profitable trading requires not just technical and fundamental analysis, but also a deep understanding of market sentiment and risk management as well. His passion is to spread advanced financial literacy to the world and build a thriving global community of stock traders and investors. With a strong track record of having developed many profitable traders through their eight-week long trading education program, I'm sure you'll be able to learn much from my interview with this gentleman. So please join me to welcome Edmund Lee, President and CEO of Kalem Trading Institute. Hey Edmund, thanks for joining me in this episode of Trading Conversations. I still remember how we first got to know each other when you accepted my invitation uh, to speak in the online trading summit last year and uh, also as well as when subsequently you accepted my request uh, for me to profile you in the Trading Mentors book that I published recently. And uh, thanks to your willingness to share the, uh, both the online trading summit and the uh, trading mentors book was a huge success. So I believe that more people from outside the Philippines uh, have actually started to notice you more uh, and the great work that you are doing and are possibly looking for ways to learn trading uh, from you and, and your institute basically. So just wondering, do you have any plans at the moment to cater for keen students who are currently based outside of the Philippines? Uh, before anything else, I'd just like to thank you for giving me the opportunity also for sharing our views and what we do. Um, on your question about if we're going outside, yes, our first stop actually is to cater to the overseas Filipino workers in different countries. And our first stop is Singapore. And hopefully the next stop that we can go through is in the Middle East through Dubai. I so we're see. Coming... Yeah, so we're coming in uh, August of this year, 20, 24 to 25. So hopefully will cater not just to the overseas Filipino workers, but even to people outside who are interested to learn more about stock trading. Fantastic, fantastic. So we, were, we, were, we might touch a bit more about that later on. Uh, so right now for a start, uh, as you know, trading conversation is really all about me acting as a, I would say, I, like a treasure hunter who goes around digging for trading wisdom, all the strategies and best practices from accomplished traders um, like yourself. But before I go on to do that, I think it will be really helpful for the audience to understand a bit about your background. Because during the, uh, the online trading summit that I had a chat with you uh, and a recording with you last, uh, last year, we didn't really go through about your own personal trading journey. I, and I think that is a story that a lot of people will really want to know before they go on to understand more about how you trade and how you actually teach people to trade. So uh, I understand that you are a chartered financial analyst. Now, this is a very in interesting point because I find it very rare to know of anyone who is both a CFA chartered holder and an accomplished trader. So because usually this tends to be a bit more conflicting because either you start with one and stick with 
one of that and not go to the other, but you are both a CFA charter holder and accomplished trader. So can you share with us how did your trading journey started? Was it CFA first or was it trading first? A lot of people don't know that I started off as a trader because my father has been in the markets for the last 40 years. So ever since I was young, I've always been exposed to the stock market and trying to understand what moves stock price in the short term. Nine years ago, when I graduated, I was primarily a finance analyst all my life. So I started off with a U.S. company and I was in charge of the technology, media and telecommunications sector. And from that point on, I saw how a lot of stocks move. And just to give you a story is that one of the companies that I was covering was BlackBerry or RIM Technology back in the day. And we had a price target of $160 per share on BlackBerry. And the price was trading at $120. And the funny part about that story was that we were so convinced that the price was going to go up because if you look at the earnings and the quality of the earnings, it was still growing at 30, 40%. And little did we know that there was a company outside in 2010 that was doubling their sales and tripling their sales, which was the famous Apple iPhone today. And two years later, from $120 per share, BlackBerry fell over 70, 80%. And the irony of all of this was that BlackBerry was still growing despite falling 80%. So I knew that there was some issue and some disconnect with what was being perceived on a fundamental basis and what price was telling you. And when I moved back to the Philippine setting and I was a COL financial analyst and I've been in the consumer and mining sector, we also covered a lot of stocks and a lot of times when we had buy ratings or I like this company so much, sometimes it didn't move for the next year or two. So I knew that there was something missing in what we were doing and it couldn't just be mostly built on price. So we went through a journey of trying to understand, especially as a trader, you try to understand what moves price. And you also look at the other science, which is technical analysis and using basically just charts. And at that time, I was always wondering why bother using fundamental analysis anyway? It takes so much time for people to realize what you see. And charting obviously makes a lot more sense because it's looking at demand and supply in the short term. So we went to the other route of just charting and just looking for huge price action, basing our decisions based on movements of surges in price, um, technical indicators, so on and so forth. And uh, the funny part is we also saw what what was the flaw also of just using purely technical analysis. We saw a lot of charts go up. A lot of times it was irrational. A lot of times it wasn't sustainable also over time. And we were speculating all over the world. And what we found out was that simply just using price alone is also not, not enough. And so we had to find a way to combine both fundamentals and technicals and use it to our advantage. And I honestly believe that, um, going through that process of looking through stories and looking at stock charts gives you a higher level of confidence. And one of the basic premises of technical analysis is that history repeats itself. And the challenge of that history repeating itself is that how do you know whether one chart you looked at before is the same story happening in the chart today? And that's where fundamentals comes in because we try to understand and dissect what was the, those stories that have resulted into a bagger, meaning a double or a triple or went up five times. And we look at the stories that we're looking at here today, try to look for resemblance, both from a charting perspective and a story perspective, 
And we try to reimagine what could be for certain particular stocks. And I think that's really helped me a lot is that there's no one true science behind everything. Meaning there's no one true science that obviously will work 100%. Technical analysis is a probability game. What people don't realize is that fundamental analysis is also a probability game. And so what we do to take advantage of all both sciences is to increase the odds by learning as much as both, um, thinking of it as a probability game, increasing our odds, and hopefully we win more times than we lose. And that's basically our philosophy for how we understand market timing. I see. So you, you mentioned that you were sort of influenced into trading because your father was a very accomplished trader and, and a veteran in the industry. So what actually prompted you to want to study and clear the CFA thing since you started with trading? That is um, um, pretty puzzling to me because uh, clearing CFA is not an easy thing to do and it requires a lot of commitment and motivation. So what actually happened during that phase in time that you decided to do it? I think it's two things. Uh, one, obviously, is that as a research analyst and as a person in a finance background, you're always trying to improve your skill, trying to make yourself better. And I found that the CFA, being a CFA charter holder was probably the best path for all of us to go through. And that's why I, like what you said, it's a lot of time commitment and it's very difficult to accomplish. And I'm very proud of what I've been able to do on that end. And second of all, um, maybe it's maybe a chip on the shoulder. I mean, like um, when you're born into this family, a lot of people tell you that it's born out of, uh, how would I put it? Um, born out of, what do you call that? Uh, sorry, I'm looking for that word. It's, uh, sorry, born out of privilege. And a lot of times we don't, I don't, I don't like to people view this as just simply as a privilege. In fact, I look at privilege as two parts. Meaning you can look at privilege as something that's bad because you're the son of the owner, or you can look at privilege as a positive and use it to further make yourself even better. So that's that. I see. So, so, the, so you actually started to learn about trading first and then subsequently you went on to try to add CFA to your, your, your domain knowledge. And that's how both of this came together for you in the end. Is that right? So yes, that's you, correct. Do you remember the first trade that you did um, how long ago was that and how was it like and what was your experience from having done that first trade? So 14 years ago, I believe, um, it was 2006. So it's almost 14 years ago. Um, most of the stocks that we were participating in was either IPO or speculative issues. So these are Apex Mining, Felix Mining. They're still here today for your information. Um, a lot of mining issues because usually the country, especially the Philippines, most of the companies that were listed at that time were mining issues. So we were buying those stocks and we were expecting these guys to go up a lot. And they just stayed there for the next six months and one year. And when I looked at the portfolio, like a year after, it was probably like all 30, 40% lower than what we initially bought it from. So that means at that point in time, you were not actually applying all the best practices or the techniques of trading yet. It was more like you decided to buy uh, because you think that it's a good company? Yeah, yeah. It's simply based on uh, what was moving at that time. So we saw most of the stocks that were moving at that time were mining companies. And the assumption was that why participate in something that's slow? And why don't we just find a way to participate when it starts moving? And that was the basic premise of even up until today about technical analysis and 
most of the companies we were buying literally were going up 100, 200%. And we always thought that, okay, I mean, if this was so easy, you might as well try to hold it and maximize it as much as you can. And we never thought about selling until probably it's up uh, five, six times, right? And one year later, when we looked at it, most of these stocks were way below, even though they went up way below from what we initially bought. But uh, I'd like to share one story about what we went through back then. Um, this was in 2011. And this was a holding company. It was uh, one of the largest conglomerates here in the Philippines today. It's owned by the Tan family, Andrew Tan family. And we were buying this company. Um, it's called AGI, Alliance Global. And we were buying this company at 13 pesos, but it actually came from four to 13 pesos. And the story was simple. It was a conglomerate of four or five different companies. And there was only one listed among those conglomerates. And the other four we felt was there's huge value among the other four subsidiaries. At 13 pesos, we were buying, I was buying so much of these shares. I was almost 150% of my portfolio in this company, right? And uh, when we were buying it, we were overloaded so much. There was no semblance of risk management because I always thought it could double or triple in the next year or two. And at 13 pesos, they needed capital for all their activity and they raised capital at 10 pesos per share. So what happened to the stock price from 13 bucks, it fell 30% to 10 bucks per share. And I was all in plus margin and I was margin called, right? And obviously I was forced to sell and liquidate all those shares at 10, 11 pesos, right? And what happened was it fell all the way to down to nine. And one year later, it went to 20. Two years later, it went to 30. But I wasn't there anymore. So that was um, um, your starting uh, in terms of trading itself. It seems like you um, you didn't really know what you were doing at that point in time. So at that point in time, do you already started to learn something about your trade uh, about about uh, trading itself from from your father or from your brother at that point in time, or was it more of like you trying to uh, test test things out yourself by doing your own own, own style of trading and investing? Yeah, yeah, I I, I totally agree with that statement. Um, if you notice about people back then, especially with chairman is that a lot of stocks or a lot of learning comes through experience. And there's, no, there's not enough information, technology like YouTube or the amount of books that you see and read here today. And that's why I believe that this generation has a bigger advantage than the ones that obviously went through in the last 40 years. And this has shown in, in what we do. And basically chairman and my father wanted us to go through that experience of learning through things by yourself. Right. And obviously, I'd like to think that what I went through was an ex more, than ex more like an exception than the rule. And I feel like this generation and for everybody succeeding is that there's, it's, it's a bad experience to go through what we went through. Because you had to go through so much difficulty and see so much difficulty before you could really try to understand how things work. But I believe that people can shortcut this entire process by going through like proper education channels learning as much as they can and without going through that bad part about losing so much money and making it out alive. And as a trader, as a person starting out, 
the time that it took for us to become where we are today, I probably say is probably four or five years in the making. And while today when we're training new people, churning out new traders is so much shorter than what we obviously experienced. And we think that this should be the framework for everybody succeeding. And that's why when we had that formula, we tried to create a framework, tried to package it into a system. And that's what we delivered through Caleb. I see. So let's discuss a bit more about your evolution as a trader. So obviously you went through the part where you have to make mistakes and, and, and in the first place, you even know that that was a bad mistakes that you made. So how did you evolve as a, as a trader thereafter uh, to the point that it comes to a point where you know what, what you are doing? How was that, that, that part of the journey like from making bad mistakes, not knowing what to do to the part where you finally know what is lacking and what is missing? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that statement. I think that one of the hardest challenges in the stock market is that it's hard to know feedback and whether that feedback is right or wrong. So example is that you could have made a trade, you could have made a lot of money, but it could have been a lucky trade rather than a right trade. And you can make the same connotation as that when you're losing money is that people often associate losing money as to making a mistake. But in reality, Losing money could have just been meant following your plan and you cutting your losses. Right? And I think one of the most important things throughout my entire journey was that I kept the journal. And I've had a journal of every single trade I've done since 2010. So for the last nine years, I've been reviewing and using data analytics to try to understand what resulted into most of my winners and what resulted into most of my losers. And it's not just about understanding what went right and what went wrong, but it's also about understanding what you could have done better. And a lot of times people fail to do this third part about what you could have done to make this trade even better. So there's a lot of post evaluation to what we do. It's not just about the pre or during, but there's a lot of post evaluation for every single trade that we've done. And I think that's very, very important because it goes into your subconscious. And a lot of times people can lie about lie to themselves about what they, what they did right, what they did wrong. But if there's real numbers and there's an actual journal right in front of you, it's very hard to lie from the objective truth. I see, I see. So you went through that part where you did everything wrongly, not following best practice, best practices to the part where you start to realize what you are, you are doing wrong and you start to improve things from there. Was there anyone or any book or any causes that you attend that helped you to transit through this, this part of the knowledge gap previously? Yeah, um, one of the basic foundations of Kalum came actually from Mark Minervini, and it was trade like a stock market wizard. And he was one of the very few people at that time, this was in 2011, there was one, very few people at that time that could actually mesh earnings, fundamentals, and technical analysis. Most books that you read at that time were mostly purely technical analysis books, or most books that you would read were purely fundamental analysis books. So it's very rare that somebody could... Uh, mesh what was happening both on a price and what was happening from a company standpoint. And I think that was where most of what we created today was founded, was founded on. But obviously over the last seven, eight years, we've evolved and we've developed from that. And we continue to improve what could move stock price better in the short term, both from a fundamental standpoint and a technical standpoint. But I think that's, that was a great book. Um, we've read a lot of great books all throughout um, the last nine, 10 years. And I'd probably say Mark Minervini's book from a basic foundation standpoint was one of the best. I see, I see. All right, so uh, if we evolve along on your journey thereafter and you, uh, I, I suppose, chairman uh, founded Caleb, uh, 
uh, as a means to um, share about the advanced financial literacy knowledge to the people of Philippines for a start initially, I suppose. Um, and thereafter, you came on board and you helped to run the programs and stuff like that. And I've, I've taken a look at what Caleb is providing, uh, the kind of training. And it seems to me that uh, in, in your eight-week program, you actually touch on uh, all, uh, most of the core important trading methodologies or horizon that includes like intraday trading, momentum trading, swing trading, and position trading. Can you share a bit about uh, more about what do how do you actually define the difference between these few different types of strategies? And I always tell people that it's not enough that you know one simple trading strategy. Let's say, for example, you're a position trader. You only have to understand position trading. And you could, have, you could just simply do position trading. That's fine. I think what people need to understand is that you need to know all trading strategies. And the reason why is because when you see it, even though you don't do anything, at least you understand why those prices are moving. So to give you guys an example is that um, a position trader and a momentum trader, for example, is that we usually distinguish them based on two things, risk appetite and time horizon. And if you look at some, somebody who wants to speculate on momentum trading, a lot of times people, uh, there's also a lot of groups that don't want to speculate and they're position traders, that they'll ride the move and maximize it on good quality companies. Now, the thing is, is that when you're seeing speculation happening, you need to understand that what it's going through today is just purely speculation rather than something sustainable. And because the reason why is because you, what, if you don't know it and you don't understand momentum trading, if you go into that trade and you see it, you might be the one carried away and you might be the one buying at the top. And that's the reason why we always tell people it's not about, it's like you go to a casino, right? And I tell people that obviously gambling is bad but you need to understand the casino and you need to know how it's done. The reason why is because if ever you get put into that situation, at least you know what to do, right? And it's the same case when it comes to um, trading short-term, way short-term on momentum and intraday and having a longer-term positions, whether it's position trading. You need to understand all spec, all, the entire trading spectrum from start to finish so that in any single event, you'll know what to do. And there's a lot of waiting, there's a lot of, there's a lot of patience, there's a lot of discipline, whether it's in position trading or momentum trading. So you need to have that flexibility enough to understand what you need to be doing in certain types of environment. And that's why all of them are very in, uh, important to what we do here in Caleb. I see. And um, I, so how, how does one trader, assuming if let's say he understands the difference between intraday trading, swing trading, momentum trading, and position trading, how does a trader uh, can confidently decide or think about which um, strategy, methodology, or style is uh, a better fit for him? Is there any ways to profile your, your, uh, the trader to, uh, to know which one might be a more suitable one for him? Uh, that's a difficult question. Um, the thing is, a lot of people have different types of risk appetites. So I think that's the first and foremost thing that you should first identify for yourself is that if you know what your risk appetite is and your reward expectations, and these are realistic expectations. A lot of times people come into the market with unrealistic expectations, thinking that they can double or triple their money in a short amount of time. And I feel like when you're going through the series of speculation, you need to know what type of companies you prefer buying so that you have that level of comfort and be able to sleep properly. And the second part about understanding yourself is that it's not just the risk appetite in your psychological profile, but it's also the timeframes that you can also accommodate on. 
And the reason why I say accommodate on is because a lot of people don't have that same amount of time that they can put into the markets as other people. But it doesn't mean that you don't, you cannot understand about position trading. You should do, right? Because markets change and you have to have the dynamics enough to understand when it's changing, right? And usually we try to complement that different strategy. If you have the time to learn everything, obviously the one thing that's most important is market sentiment. So we have fundamental analysis, we have technical analysis, and we also have macro sentiment. And a lot of trading strategies also depend on the type of macro sentiment that we're in. So if we're early stages of a bull market or reversal, normally position trading and momentum would work the best. And we try to maximize it as much as we can. But when it comes to the latter stages of every single bull market or cycle, usually the cycles and the movements are much shorter. So there has to be a lot of profit taking on your mindset. So it's usually a buy low, sell high instead of trying to maximize it. And that's where swing trading and momentum trading will probably work the most at the latter stages. While position might not be your optimal because you don't want to be holding too long in a difficult type of environment. And I think it's, it's, what's happening today is a perfect example of that. And markets are very difficult. The moves are very short in nature. So to maximize it, you probably have to think about taking money off the table if it starts going up. So does that mean that um, over the long run, uh, a proficient trader should actually, in your opinion, understand how to use all the different styles so that uh, in different market conditions, you can actually change your style to suit what the market condition is at at that point in time? Or would, do, you, do you think that is not actually very realistic, especially if you're talking about majority of the traders out there are like part-time, they are working professionals and they are doing trading on a part-time basis? No way. I think everybody needs to go through that experience and try to learn everything. And as a trader, it's your responsibility. One of the most difficult jobs in this world is being a trader, right? So you have to put in that effort to try to learn everything. And one of the key metrics and key um, values that we always push for is open-mindedness. And you always have to have that open-mindedness to try to look for opportunity in whatever type of market environment. And if you don't understand that and understand how certain systems work, you're going to have a very difficult time. And the reason why it's because for you to gain your advantage is that you need to understand the players that are involved as a trader. So if it's a market largely driven by institutions or retail traders or momentum traders or whatsoever, it's not for you to change who you are. That's not my point. Meaning you need to know exactly what your identity is and what type of strategy you'd be doing, but it's as equally important to understand what others are doing. And if you don't understand all these different systems, you might not be able to understand what other people are thinking. And it will be a detriment to your uh, portfolio. That's for sure. I see, I see. So if let's say I am a, a new, new trader, new part-time uh, retail trader, I'm a working professional, and I starting to come to the stage where I, I have saved some money, a significant amount of money, and I'm looking to start putting it to good use in the financial markets. What would be your advice for me as this person to learn about trading or even investing? What would be the natural progression that you think I should go through? I think everybody has to start by understanding and buying basic mutual funds and understanding about how to trade most of these uh, mutual funds. And the reason why is because there's less systemic risk when you're buying ETFs. And when you're trading ETFs, you have a better understanding of what's moving it, right? And then as you slowly go on to that progression and you want to learn how to stock pick to get better returns, that's usually where the problem lies, right? But uh, that's where opportunity also exists. 
And when you start to go down that pipeline of understanding ETFs and then individual stocks, right? And then what's important is not just having a good background on technical analysis, but what's important is that every single trade that you do, try to understand why it went up or why it went down. And if you keep on writing it down and you try to understand, okay, um, it was mostly a fundamental factor why this company went up, or it was mostly because of one event that happened in a global market that affected everything that happened, or it was because of a regulatory or there was a tsunami or a typhoon or whatever, right? And if you keep on writing it down, why things went up, why it went down, I'll tell you the experience will become so much faster in learning. And you do this over like a thousand, two thousand times, you'll start to come up with common factors and common similarities as to why a particular stock went up or down, right? And as you go through that progression, the science and you try to learn it, which is through a education and that art portion, which is what we call the experience of going through the motions, right? And you combine both and you learn through it, you'll start to get better over time. And I feel like what's important here in the stock market and as a stock trader is for you not to compare yourself. And I think every single person has their own progression. Some people might learn it faster than the others. Some people might learn it slower. I think regardless of whatever progression that you go through, whether fast or slow, what's important is that you survive. And you have to live long enough to go through this difficulty, see one through one whole cycle of stocks going up 30, 40%, a stock going down 20, 30%, and go through that entire cycle for five, six years. And then if you come out and you know how to do it, then obviously what's important is that the next cycle, you're able to replicate it. Um, I want to understand a bit more about the work that you do at Caleb itself. All right. So uh, how long has Caleb been established and, 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 and what actually motivates the start of Caleb in the first place? And five years ago, we started Caleb for mostly for hiring purposes for both CEO of financial and city securities. So we always thought about it like a culinary school where you pay me, we train you. If we like you, then we hire you. So we didn't want to hire people off the ground. And if they lost money for us, it would be all on us, right? So we tried to expedite that process. And that's, what, and that's why Kalem was born, right? Um, the reason why we were very confident in what we were doing was that personally, all of us were very successful trading individually. So what people don't see from Kalem is that when we were starting, there were like three, four students in our classroom. I mean, like today we're always full in every single batch, but people don't realize that when we were starting, we were nothing. It was so hard to get people into this classroom, right? But I always told my team, don't, don't worry about it, right? As long as what we were doing was for the benefit of everybody else, then I always believe it was just going to be about time, right? Eventually people would see what we do and then hopefully people would come join us and try to learn from us as well. And I think that's a beautiful experience about seeing what has happened to Caleb over the last five years. People are, I mean, like our team is always focused about what we've been able to accomplish today. I like to look back and try to see what we went through before. And I think it's that journey of going through difficult times. Same thing, like a trader, you have to go through those difficult times and go through that motion and make sure that you don't give up, you persist in it. And hopefully that over time you'd become successful. And I think it works the same way, whether it's business, education, what we do or even being a trader where you're by yourself. 
you have to go through that rounds and that persistence to come out alive. And it's always best to see success when you've gone through difficulty instead of just being an overnight success. <laughs> I see. So how, how many batches have you guys uh, conducted through already and how many has actually went through uh, the entire eight week uh, course? Um, we're going through batch 11 right now for our recruitment course. We accommodate 30 students per batch. Um, our alumni today is over 600, I believe, but that includes the shorter course. So we average approximately around 30 students per batch for each um, recruitment program for eight weeks. And yeah, so that's pretty much it. And, and what's the profile of all these people attending the course? Are they attending because they are looking to go full-time into trading? Or are, actually, or are they actually like uh, part-time retail traders but trying to learn more proper uh, techniques and, and workflow of trading so that they can uh, accomplish or uh, compound on their savings on a more effective and efficient way? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, the demographics mostly is for people who are planning to do it full-time. Um, when we started Kalum, the early batches were usually those in the second career. So our demographics was around 28 to 31, right? Um, these are people who have been working for the last five, six years in their corporate job who want to make that shift and try to learn more about it. And that was our demographics probably in the first four batches. But from batch five all the way to batch 10, including batch 11, most of the students today are usually young. And we've been getting fresh graduates, people with one or two years worth of work experience. And these guys, like from a very early age, and I assume it's coming from college, obviously want to become and learn more about full-time trading altogether. And that's usually our market today. So we've seen how information and trading has evolved, especially in the Philippines in a small small. Uh, how would I put it? There's only a small retail base of trading of traders here. So it's growing rapidly in the Philippines. I think we see it. So we were early for our time five years ago, but today I think we're benefiting it because we've been in the right timing also. Yeah, because when you mentioned that 2011, it seems like everything is like very, very new in trading for you guys. But in Singapore, it feels like it's already a very old industry. So that is something that is, um, uh, I, I need to reconcile a bit to, to understand how <laughs> things are evolving on, on, on the Philippine side. So, uh, so what, what have you noticed from uh, those students who came into the course itself uh, uh, following the, uh, their eight weeks course after they have finished it? What was the biggest thing that you noticed about the changes in them? I think that will give uh, our audiences a very good uh, understanding about what are the key things that someone who doesn't know anything much about trading and as you go through an entire program, what are the, 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 most, the most important positive characteristic that you will notice from someone who has gone through a program like that? Yeah, um, we've noticed about a big change for most of the traders that have started from nothing, no background and trying to learn. Versus we compare it with some of the students that we've had who went through so much experience, like five, eight years worth of trading experience. Now they're learning because they've already gone through the trauma of the stock market. And we've seen a big difference and a big change. And usually the ones that have gone through so much experience and now want to learn, right? They carry with them so much biases in whatever trading behavior that they do. And we call this hermeneutics, and it's in a book called Trading for a Living, Hermeneutics. And a lot of times that we do in trading is based on experience. So if you had no education and you've 
mostly been learning through experience in the stock market, it's very common for you to use those experience as to identify whether something is a buying opportunity or a selling opportunity, right? And that's where a lot of problems exist for older traders, right? It's because you're using experience to determine what is right and what is wrong, okay? Um, for the young traders who are very, well, coming from a blank slate, um, there's nothing there yet. It's actually easier for us to train. Now, the reason one, and because of uh, having a blank slate, usually their cup is more empty than somebody who's more seasoned, right? So it's easier to feed in information and put in the right inputs for them to understand what they should be doing from an early stage, right? Because a lot of bad habits, if you continue to do it, will are very difficult to reverse, right? As opposed to somebody who has no experience, no bad habits yet, um, it's easier for them to feed information. So I think that's the benefit of somebody who's coming from no background also. from, And obviously, um, what's important is that what we teach in the eight weeks is the right inputs, right? So if we're giving them the wrong information, uh, then it's going to not come to fruition. So have you seen any of those that came with baggages of past bad trading habits and experiences constantly trying to fight against what you guys are trying to teach them in a way? And, and how do you guys go about overcoming that? Because if your focus is really to help them become better traders, then that is also one job, main job that you got to do. How do you help them to uh, get rid of their bad habits so that they can focus on, on the, the right and the correct ones? Yeah, um, no questions asked. We have a lot of traders that have gone through bad habits and continue to do bad habits, right? Um, trading psychology is a very important part to us. I think we haven't mentioned it yet. Um, one of the key parts in the program is also trading psychology, right? So we try to show as much biases, try to show as much behavior that you see. Um, we do a personality test also. So at least they try to understand what they like to see more, what they like to do more. And it's very important to understand yourself in this industry. And I feel like as you go through this experience of trading, you'll learn more, not just about yourself in trading, but learn more about yourself individually, right? And that part about trading is actually the greatest part. The reason why is because I always tell people, um, show me, if you talk to me 30 minutes and you show me how you trade, I probably have pretty much have a good idea how you are also in real life. So whether it's the fear of missing out, whether it's you not being patient, whether you're very eager or opportunistic or you're very um, aggressive versus conservative, it will show actually in all your training that you do, right? Um, every single person has different identities. Um, we have 40 prop traders here with all different identities as well. So we try to cater them and try to mold them and try, try to understand more about themselves, right? Um, each personality will differ, but at the core of everything, which is our framework of the fundamentals, technical sentiment, risk management, that part will not change, right? On how they approach it and how they do it might be different, meaning how they use it to their advantage, but the process will always be the same. And I think every single trader needs to understand that. You need to have a strong foundation for all the process so that when it comes to actual execution, right, whatever personality or whatever you do as a person becomes so much easier to execute on. I see, I see. All right, great. So um, I remember very vividly that during the online training summit interview, you mentioned this framework about the fundamentals, technical sentiments and uh, risk management, right? 
Uh, I don't think that we managed to cover significantly anything about sentiments at all. So can you explain a bit more about uh, what sentiments in, in this particular framework, what are the things that, uh, that it encompasses and how do you go about measuring sentiments in a way or is it purely something that is qualitative kind of, of measurement? Uh, think of it this way. Um, this is from Stanley Druckenmiller. And what drives price is usually two things. Um, it's earnings, meaning the company of the quality of the earnings, and two is liquidity, right? So when he talks about liquidity, it's about the Fed, right? And we've seen how stock prices are mostly affected by liquidity in the stock market, right? Um, higher interest rates affect flows, lower interest rates increase flows. Um, we've seen all these types of movements happening on the global economy scale, right? So it's so important to understand what the global economy and global markets are doing, not just in the equity asset class, but even in the bonds asset class property and all different types of asset classes, right? Um, that's the important part about understanding macro. We've done our study, almost 65% of a stock market's return or a stock's return is largely driven by re-ratings and liquidity, right? So that's what people fail to see is because people are so focused on earnings and price action, people also fail to understand what's happening from a central bank standpoint, right? Because no matter what you say, let's say today's type of environment, people are saying the bull market cycle is almost coming to a close. We're 10 years into the bull market cycle, right? So but if you look at liquidity, we're at a 2.5% interest rates. The economy is still, I mean, it's slowing down, obviously, but liquidity is still abundant. Um, even the Fed is still talking about driving interest rates lower, right? I think we've seen this with the 10-year interest rates. And no matter what you say, if we don't, if liquidity is still abundant and there's no credit crisis, how is this, how is this stock market going to go down, right? So these are things that we understand about the macro part. And I think that's very important because you could, I mean, technical analysis could tell you that we're overbought. Um, momentum is slowing down. We're seeing divergences, right? But if there's no systemic risk on the economy, how will it go down, right? It could just be a temporary setback and continue to just go up higher, like what we've seen in the last three months in the global markets, right? And that's why macro to us is so important because we always look at stuff from a top-down approach. I see. And how, how would you consider as a fundamental, uh, based on that particular framework we're talking about, what, what, what is the fundamentals about how do you actually measure the fundamentals? And is, is it applicable actually for all kinds of trading styles or is it really more just for, for position trading kind of time frame? Yeah, actually fundamental analysis becomes more important the longer time frames that you have, right? Um, if you're talking about short-term trading like momentum and you're looking to enter a stock for like two to five days, right? for example, like um, the cannabis stocks in the US, right? Obviously most of these companies have no earnings, have no revenues, um, but they're built on a story. So usually when we're trading these stocks in momentum, such as the cannabis story, we just have that understanding about why is it moving just in the short term. And it doesn't take a genius to know what people are pricing in for cannabis, meaning they're probably looking at it as the next tobacco industry or whatsoever, right? So usually fundamental analysis doesn't play a huge role, right? Um, when it comes to um, how we call it stalwarts or high growth companies where earnings is largely driving the company, Fundamental analysis plays a large role. And we try to look at re-ratings. We try to look at um, what, where that extra 40, 50% could come from. So we try to look at everything that can affect the share price within the six months to one year. We don't try to go beyond that. 
So if we're looking at a long-term story in a company, but the short term, like in the next six months and one year is bad, we won't touch it. We try to look at companies that are great quality companies and have that X factor in that six months to one year period. Um, we try to look for obviously earnings growth accelerating in the, in the quarter, last quarter or two. And from then on, th those are usually where we focus our attention on and where we see a lot of baggers come from. I see, I see. So what, what is actually the main difference between swing trading and momentum trading? Is momentum trading more about things like breakouts and a very quick movements and, and swing trading? How, how, how do you actually differentiate those two based on um, the kind of teachings that you guys have? Yeah, I'll probably just name all three and three most important ones. So when you talk about position trading, it's normally in areas of consolidation. So you might hear it as Darvas, Darvas boxes, um, uh, any types of consolidation. We call it durations, right? Um, those are normally four to six months in nature or one to two months in nature. So those are usually where we capitalize on for position trading. Um, second part is about momentum trading. And those normally we, it's a strategy to ride a stock when it's starting to break out. And normally for momentum trading, we look for what we call boss days. So it's like going through a huge burst and we're looking for a one or two days of pauses, right? And those are the times for us to re-enter when it starts to break out again. And then the third part is about swing trading. Instead of looking at consolidations and um, breakouts, normally what we look for in swing trading is what we call pullbacks, right? Um, so usually pullbacks are very common, especially in more efficient countries such as Singapore and US. So swing trading becomes even more important from a global market. I see. And do you think it is realistic to look at both these, uh, all these three types of trading on the same, same particular company and chart? Or do you think that generally for each, type, each company, there is usually a, a, a trading style that is more suitable for, for each, each of those companies? Yeah, great question. Um, the answer is yes. Um, usually we try to put in companies into two different baskets. So we usually classify them under 45 or 90 degree companies. So when we talk about 45 degree com companies, normally we look at them as, these are your stalwarts, high growth, largely driven by earnings, right? And usually these type of companies usually move in channels, right? So position trading and maximizing it becomes even more important. So it's usually position and swing trading for 45 degree companies, right? Usually for more speculative issues, for example, like what I mentioned about cannabis, or 5G in Hong Kong and China, usually we try to approach it from more of a 90 degree standpoint because it's not driven by earnings. It's usually driven by a story, right? And usually when people price in stories, people are pricing in ridiculous valuations. They think of uh, the worst, uh, the greatest, and uh, things that you could never imagine, probably look at it on that standpoint, right? And it's not earnings driving it, but it's purely speculation. And when it comes to this, these types of companies, we always know that the exit is so much shorter than 45 degree companies. And that's why for 90 degree companies driven by speculation, we approach them from a momentum trading standpoint. So that's usually how we identify what type of trading strategy we will be doing. Does that mean that uh, momentum companies usually after this very sharp uh, up run due to the stories will come crumbling down thereafter uh, typically, or do they actually usually stay at that level and continue to just becoming a 45 degrees company thereafter? Yeah, um, majority of the times, I'd probably say like um, in 100 companies of speculation, I'd probably say like only 5% actually make it. So a lot of times when 95% of these companies break out, they go up 200, 300% short amount of time. 
you have to make that expectation most of them will go down and fall back even lower from where they came from, right? But those 5% of the time where they're really, really great companies, they had a great innovation, great product, um, a lot of times they turn into 45 degree companies also. There's that chance of it happening. Um, think of it like Tesla six years ago, right? Um, we were looking at Tesla, it was at $35 per share. And in a span of one year, it went up seven times. So it went up from $35 per share to as high as 240. Today, Tesla is still at 240, right? So it already finished at 90 degree stage. What people are looking at is that what's gonna drive it going forward is that it's gonna be earnings now. It's gonna be showing what actual results. It's not about the story anymore about Tesla. What's gonna drive it to the next level is what can they deliver? Can revenues actually increase? Can sales increase? Can earnings start to show up? Right? These are things you didn't look at six years ago. Right? People were just looking at the product. Oh, it's a great product. Oh, everybody's going to be driving a Model S, Model E, or a Model X. That's what everybody was looking at. Nobody was looking at about how much it was going to be burning. Right? And you can make that connotation that it's very difficult for a company from a 90-degree angle to turn into a 45 degrees. And I honestly believe so. Right? And, but if you do spot one, that's where like a large money can come about, right? You have to think of it this way. Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, most of these companies, the early heydays were all driven by speculation, right? They're all looking like 90 degree companies where they went up five, 10 times in a short amount of time. And they all went back down, right? What took it higher to the next level was that it was largely now driven by earnings, by business, by uh, profitability rather than speculation, right? So to answer your question, the answer is yes, it is, but it's very difficult to spot. I see. And uh, I, I mean, in, in the past, it's not as easy for people to look at uh, alternative markets. But nowadays, it's becoming very easy, especially as if, let's say, if, if I'm based in Singapore, I can easily look at trading any of the uh, um, developing markets, uh, stock markets, or even the highly developed stock markets at the US market. So how, in your opinion, should one consider the kind of markets to look at to uh, actually filter and shortlist for trading ideas from? Is there any particular criteria that, that you look at? Because this is one common question that I got asked is, how do I know which markets to, to look for trading ideas in? And assuming if you, even if I know which markets to look at, then how do I actually narrow down the list from such a huge list to a smaller list? What's your general yeah. thoughts on that in terms of the different, different markets, develop, developed markets, developing markets, emerging markets? Um, we work with traders abroad and we have this, we did a survey, right? Um, it's called home bias, right? And a lot of people, I've done a study for Indonesians and I did a study here also for Philippines, right? Most of the people, 95% of people will probably stick to their home country. So think of it this way, if you're Indonesian, why would I buy a Philippine company? And if I'm a Filipino, why would I buy an Indonesian company? So majority of the time, most of these um, individuals would probably stick to their home, right? Um, they can see it, they can feel it, um, they know, they can see, for example, you're buying a company, you can see whether that business is actually doing well or not, right? Um, that's usually the first case. So people usually stick to their home, right? Second is that it's usually the U.S. And I understand why it's the U.S. Because if you go to the U.S., there's just so much what we call mega trends technology evolving, right? Um, most emerging markets don't have that technological progress that developed markets have. And if you look at the value chain in um, if you look at the country that has probably the best technology-driven economy, it's going to be the U.S., right? So our best bet is try to look for opportunities. If you're not looking, 
if you're buying a traditional type of company, you might as well do it in your home country, right? But if you're buying something that's the future or technology or something that can be life-changing and productivity-changing, you have to go to the U.S. and that's where the opportunity will lie in. I see. So do you personally look at like China markets because um, they are also starting to show signs of uh, being as creative and in terms of innovative as compared to the U.S. companies? So yeah. is that an area that you study as well, the China markets? Yeah, our three main markets today is Hong Kong, U.S. and the Philippines, right? Um, we don't have access to China markets, but uh, when you look at the Hong Kong stocks, it's the same case. So like, um, that's why I mentioned about 5G technology a while ago in China. Um, they're obviously surpassing what technology 5G is in the U.S., right? Um, there's so much controversy today, uh, but we like it. I think it's a story and that's what we're seeing here today. Um, we're very focused and trying to look for opportunity also in China and Hong Kong. And it's very important for us to look at it. But if you ask me if you had to pick first, you might as well go to the U.S. first and then Hong Kong. I see, I see. All right, great, Emmon. I think it was a pretty uh, helpful session and in, in, in insightful session that you shared about the kind of uh, methodologies and the kind of insights that, that you guys have uh, from your own personal perspective as well as Calum's. So before we end off today's session, I would just like to, uh, for the benefit of the audience who might be listening in, right? So uh, Calum is a, is, a, is a training institute for trading. So uh, after you have done 11 batches of students, can you share with us maybe what are, do you think are the three key characteristics of the best students that you have seen uh, graduated from your program? Yeah, um, it's usually three traits I always tell people. Um, first is what I mentioned a while ago about open-mindedness. And you have to keep on learning. Till today, we are still continue, continuously trying to innovate, trying to learn more, trying to find out what we did not see um, try to improve our tactics. And I think that's the beauty about the stock market because it will keep on changing. So the strategies that we see today and the systems that we see today might not work in five to 10 years. The reason why it's because markets are becoming more efficient. People learn about what you do and that's the beauty about it. But there's always going to be some type of anomaly. And the reason why it's because the stock market will always be driven by human behavior and human behavior will always commit the same mistakes over and over again. Right? So that's number one. Um, number two is about hard work and persistence, right? Like what I mentioned a while ago, everybody has their own timeline and own journey, but you have to stick to that grind and put in that effort, right? It might not show right away, results might not show in, in right away, but if you keep on doing it and you stick to the right process over time, I can guarantee that you will do well, right? It's about surviving this difficulty period and surviving and not dying because if you die, it's hard for you to come back into the markets. Right. Um, and third is about humility. And I cannot, and we never talked about humility yet. Um, no matter how good you are, let me put it, you can always be wrong. Right. Um, we always have to accept that in the stock market, we're never going to be wrong. We're, ne we're never going to be right 100% of the time. Right. And when you're wrong, you have to admit that you're wrong. Right. You can, pride is cheap in the stock market. And if you're stuck, and I sure, I'm sure a lot of fundamentalists have this issue is that when they fall in love with a stock, they hold it forever. And sometimes that forever can also not go up forever, right? And I think that's the very much important is that you have to keep humble, be humble in this entire journey, um, do the best that you can. And hopefully at the end of the rainbow, you'll make it out alive. Fantastic, fantastic. Emmon, thanks so much uh, for your sharing today. That's it for now, my friends. Uh, I'm your host, Philip Dio, and I hope to have you joining us again in the next episode of Trading Conversations. Thanks, Philip. Appreciate it.
Thanks, Edmund. My pleasure.